everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris, one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks so much for coming today. If it's your first Sunday, as always, we just wanted to, uh, like Jonah said, welcome you and welcome the rest of you back. It's good to see you all. Uh, but if, you're, if, you're, if it's your first Sunday, welcome to our church. We're glad you guys are here. Uh, we are in a series right now in the Gospel of John, uh, sort of getting to the end at this point. We're in the crucifixion narrative, or as we sometimes call it, the passion narrative of Christ or the Christ event. Uh, this is the climax of the book and really the whole Bible. Uh, everything in the Bible up to this point leads up to uh, the top of the pyramid here. Uh, everything else sor- serves a supportive role. Uh, if, if the uh, biblical theology was the Oscars or if the Bible was like the Oscars, this moment would win Best Actor. Everything else gets it Best uh, uh, Supporting Actor uh, recognition. Uh, this is it. And so uh, we have been uh, now for four weeks, I think, or three weeks. This is week four of six, kind of taking a deep dive into the cross We'll, uh, we'll come to the resurrection after that and spend several weeks there before finishing the book. But um, last week we talked about uh, the question of where did Jesus die? And if you're here, we, we talked about how uh, theology uh, and location in the Bible are connected. So location matters theologically. Where things happen and where things don't happen uh, tell us something about the character of God or about Uh, ourselves sometimes or really about the nature of the gospel and so the fact that Jesus died outside the city between people uh, underneath a multilingual sign at a place called Golgotha all of that means something symbolically uh, or theologically as it draws from other places in the Bible Um, and so remember the Bible's one story of of many parts that all hang together and so when we come to one part and, and seek to interpret it Uh, One of the questions we must ask is what does the Bible say elsewhere about these same things? And how do those supporting actor parts uh, sort of uh, support and tell the story of this main main kind of uh, uh, part here, climax of the story? Uh, Or just any part that we're in. How do the parts kind of interpret um, the whole? So last week was that question of location. So where did Jesus die? And and we drew theology from that, uh, if you're here for that. this week is another question. The question is, uh, really, what is Jesus wearing? So we're going to talk about Jesus' clothing today from John 19, 23 to 27, and, and the same uh, sort of rules apply. Jesus' clothing uh, means something to us theologically. It didn't just happen that he was wearing something. It didn't just happen that his clothes were stripped off him and ripped into pieces and clamored for by the soldiers. We'll read about that in a second uh, if you don't know about that, but... Um, it's not just that it happened, but why it happened, and in, in what manner, and what does that tell us theologically about what's happening um, on the cross, and how do we get good news, basically, uh, from these things. So that's the plan today. I'm going to take this in two sections today. Let me read from the first two verses of this first, John 19, 23 to 24, and we'll spend some time there first. So it says, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Okay, so kind of diving then headlong into this idea of Jesus' clothing thematically, I want to start big picture and then we'll hone in on a couple of details later. So we'll kind of, um, I always, I know this image a lot, but twist the diamond and the light. Look at these, the same thing, but from different facets. Uh, but we'll kind of start with the 
in some sense the most obvious, I think this is like simultaneously something here um, that is the most obvious and also kind of least obvious, if that's possible, uh, at, at the same time. But the first thing to understand is implied in the message. It's not stated, and that's why it's easy to read over, uh, so it's easy to miss. But Jesus is being crucified naked. Jesus is being crucified naked. Um, we don't always see it portrayed this way in art or in movies, uh, but Jesus uh, at this juncture is completely stripped uh, down, no clothing, and he's pinned to a tree naked um, uh, for a number of reasons, uh, for the torturous kind of reason as well, and there's some things I actually won't go into today, uh, mostly because it's, it's graphicness, uh, but uh, also because of the shame that came with this. And, um, uh, and so uh, he's on the cross, uh, but his clothes are on the ground. And so it's implied here, but we see that Jesus is hanging, but his clothes are not where he is. Uh, the soldiers are scrounging for it, and casting lots is basically kind of like rolling dice. Uh, with the one garment anyway, they're kind of uh, casting lots for who would get that one piece uh, with the idea of selling it probably. So it, it's, a, uh, it's a horror fest really. And this, uh, we've been trying to show this from a number of angles these past few weeks. But it's a, not just a horror fest, it's a shame-filled one. Uh, Jesus, the Son of God, is naked. And he's, uh, and he's being pinned to a tree among criminals dying for our sins. Um, but as usual... That therein lies the gospel. The, the gospel here is Jesus is naked and we get his clothes. Jesus is naked and we get his clothing, like the soldiers. Uh, Jesus is stripped and we get covered. Uh, Jesus takes our shame and we get peace. Um, and shame has a lot to do with exposure uh, in life. Um, and so uh, w- with Jesus then, the image here is that instead of coming to uncover us uh, and uh, to expose us, he comes to be uncovered for us. So he doesn't come to uncover us. He came to, in our place, be uncovered and exposed and to divert our shame onto himself. Um, Romans 10.11 says, Whoever believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. So there's, there's this idea in the Bible that when you believe in Jesus and understand the gospel, shame starts to lose its grip. Like, you, we don't have as much shame anymore. It starts to kind of progressively, um, you know, unclench its fists or, or its fingers from around our heart and soul uh, and our mind. Um, and this is partly where it comes from. So it's stated more clearly elsewhere, but here it's being shown that Jesus is diverting our shame uh, onto himself as a naked man in public being crucified in this way uh, among criminals. Uh, in fact, uh, it's actually a really good question to ask yourself when you think about the cross and when you think about even just a passage specifically like this. Um, the question being, what am I ashamed of in life? Like, what, what do I have shame over? What do you have shame over um, right now in your life? And, and then to look at Jesus as the one who shared in your shame, not as one who exposed it or even just even talked about it, but one who actually shared in it, who took on shame himself. Not just shame, but your shame and, and my shame. Because on that cross, he took on our sins, which is partly what makes us shame-filled people. Shame can come from what's done to us as well, um, but a lot of it's from what we do or haven't done. Um, a lot of it is sin-related. And so, like on, a, on an interpersonal level, I don't know if this has happened to you guys um, with other people before. I'm guessing it has for a lot of you. Um, but I found like an experience that shame is lifted 
when you confess your shameful sin to someone else uh, and they say something like, yeah, I've done that too. Or I've done way worse than that. And then they accept you and they don't dwell on it and your relationship isn't affected at all. Um, or maybe you've been on the other end of that where someone has brought something to you and you said, yeah, I've done that as well. I've done that a thousand times. I know, I know. And uh, the, the, the crazy thing here with the gospel and what's happening on the cross is we have that same kind of exchange with Jesus. Uh, Jesus hasn't done our sin or any sin, but he's so much taken it on himself and become like a sinner that when we bring our sin to him, his response is, yeah, I get it. I understand. I can empathize. It's okay. Uh, so Jesus hasn't just died for our sins. He's wholesale shared in it. And so he can be an empathizer, uh, the Bible says, or one that can have sympathy as a high priest. He can know exactly what we're going through and even what we have done because he becomes so much our scapegoat, so much our sin atoner on the cross uh, that he then becomes not a judge but a brother. He becomes not a spotlight onto us. Uh, you guys know those uh, types of mirrors that are like magnifiers? And you look at the mirror, and it's like, oh my gosh, yuck, you know, and you can't even look at yourself, because like, what the, what is on my face? Um, I actually don't have one of those, um, but my wife does, in case you're wondering. Is he wearing, like, does Chris wear makeup? Uh, no, I don't. Um, but it's, but I've seen it, these mirrors are just like exposing, right? Um, they're, the, they're the worst kind. Jesus isn't that. He's not a mirror. Um, other things are in the Bible. They, they serve a mirror-like purpose. But with Jesus, he's more like an article of clothing, that's wrapped around us. Uh, elsewhere in the Bible, it says, uh, put on Jesus. Put him on. Wear his love. Um, you know, it doesn't, doesn't draw love out of us uh, as much as it says, put on his love. As though it's not from you, but you can wear it. And, and then it becomes like a part of you, in a sense. But our nakedness is covered, uh, is the idea. The shame of what we have done, the shame of what we haven't done, the shame of what's been done to us. Um, has been diverted. The eyes of, of the world that wants to expose and laugh and poke and, and post pictures of things that, that um, expose others so we look better, the eyes, of, the eyes of that's been diverted from us onto the Son of God so we can um, have peace and, um, and, and life. That's, that's what's happening here uh, with, with Christ. All right, so moving on from that, um, the, clothes them, the clothes themselves then, it says, are being divided up into, it says here, four pieces. There's four soldiers here, apparently, and they're tearing it up um, to some of the clothing to divide it among themselves. So the idea with this, in terms of what's being portrayed um, symbolically and otherwise, I, I, would, I would say in a similar vein to when Jesus took bread, if you remember this, a couple of times in John, he's done this, actually, where he took bread and he called it his body, then he broke it and shared it with the spiritually hungry or physically hungry too. Here I think it's the same imagery, uh, just with torn clothing. Uh, the clothing represents his torn body shared with sinners, even sinners who are at present murdering him. This is like we just sang about this idea of um, the beautiful scandalous night. This is how scandalous it was. Uh, Jesus is sharing, um, he's letting people steal from him. He's sharing his body. 
uh, sharing something that uh, was a possession of his with not just anybody, not like good people who, who deserve it, but the people who are actually um, responsible, in part here at least, uh, for his murder, for his death. Um, but the beauty in that is that's what he's done for you and me. Like, we're no better than the soldiers. Uh, we are like murderous soldiers who have received the grace of God and who have been loved and who are transferred into his family as sons and daughters of the king. That's, that's part of what, that's our story here. Um, and the soldiers uh, give us a window into that. Now, uh, what's um, striking linguistically here um, is the mention of one of these pieces of clothing being woven, uh, quote, from top to bottom. So yet there's an undergarment as well. Did you guys notice that? There's these, there's these general pieces, and then there's this undergarment that they said, let's not tear that, let's cast lots for that, and let's keep that kind of intact, and one of us will get that rather than splitting it up uh, is, is kind of what they're doing. Uh, but what's striking linguistically is the, the, the mention of how it's woven um, from top to bottom. Uh, here, uh, which is the same uh, language used in Matthew 27 uh, to refer to the curtain in the temple. Um, so if you don't know about this, the, in the uh, temple, the Old Testament, uh, which was still um, set up at this time, there was this curtain that divided this, this very holy place called the Holy of Holies, the holiest place, which is where God dwelt. Uh, there was a curtain between that and the rest of the world, basically. Not just the rest of the temple, but, you know, it symbolized we can't be with God. It symbolized that God can't be with us, that there was a barrier, there was a wall, and no one could go in except the high priest uh, once a year who uh, himself imaged Christ in a way, but that's a different sermon. Um, here, though, uh, in Matthew 27, you have the same language um, with the, the curtain as you do with Jesus' um, uh, undergarment. And, um, and so the, the idea here is that Jesus' death What's happening is that he's about to tear open the dividing point between God and the rest of the world uh, so that God can run out of the Holy of Holies and, uh, and dwell with us again. Um, so in Matthew 27, um, uh, it, I don't have it here on screen, but it talks about how the, the curtain was ripped and not just ripped kind of you know, side to side or in a bunch of pieces, but from top to bottom with the moment of Jesus' death, that separating veil was, was split open. Um, Hebrews 10.20, interestingly, interestingly as well, says, By the blood of Jesus, a new and living way is opened up for us through the, that curtain. That is his body. So you see how the, the, the Bible links the curtain in the temple with Jesus' body. Both are being torn open. So whether it's the clothing being torn, whether it's Jesus' flesh being torn, whether it's the curtain in the temple being torn, all of those things go together. They're all meant to be seen as interrelated. And so the idea is there is a tearing in a very specific kind, but Jesus' death is not just a physical tearing or, or a, um, a shame-filled, excruciating, uh, you know, torture moment. Uh, this is actually the gospel for the world. This is the way that God will break open the barrier between uh, us, us and him. And, and that's where the gospel is here. Um, Jesus' death actually is starting to do damage to the Old Testament temple. Uh, to the thing that separated people from God, he's, he's beginning to do damage to it. Uh, his death is beginning to tear it all down. This, uh, as Ephesians 2 says, this dividing wall of hostility. It's a helpful reference here as well. I'll just read this 
Ephesians 2, 13 to 15 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. So what this is saying is uh, when Jesus died, he set aside the Old Testament law. He set aside the commandments of the Bible. He set aside the rules and the regulations. Um, and, he, and he showed it, demonstrated it in many ways, but one of which was when he tore the temple open, when his flesh was ripped open, he set aside the old system uh, with its religious commands and its conditional expectations uh, to stay in covenant with God based on what we do. Uh, it was set aside. It was put over here. The laws are put over here, and now Jesus is over here. He's a new and better way, but they're not blended. Um, and so the Bible then is saying that when we operate by law, when we operate by the commands, when we have the mindset of I must obey to stay in relationship with him and to live, like the law itself said, when we operate that way, Christian or not, the veil goes back up. It's sewn back together. Like you can't have Jesus and law. Like the veil, is, the veil goes back up. Like Jesus came and with his blood being spilt, he set aside the old ways for just his body and, and his being the only way we can be in covenant with God. Um, that's why Hebrew says a new and living way here because it wasn't like that in the Old Testament. Something brand new is here. And by the blood of Jesus, the old thing's been set aside and the new way of grace uh, has, has come. All right, now on, on the flip side then of this, uh, there, is, there, there was the one garment that was uh, not torn, but was seamless. Um, it's not divided. So on the one hand, while divided clothing teaches us one thing about the gospel, and we, just, we talked about that, so now this undivided clothing teaches us something um, as well. A lot of times the Bible does this. It sort of takes, uh, looks at one kind of point of theology from a couple of angles um, and they seem like they're competing, but they're not. They're just different facets. Um, but the idea is that through Jesus, um, the seamless clothing conveys that there are no seams anymore between us and God. There's not like any point of weakness or possibility of tearing. Um, you know, God's grace is not like one of those hospital gowns that expose your back. You know, no one likes those things. Uh, but it's like it's a seamless cover uh, it, in the same way, in Jesus, there's no reminder of our past separation from God. There's no scar or blemish on our salvation. Only he wears scars on his body, but there's no scars on our salvation. Um, no reminder of sin, but as far as the east is from the west, um, we, th- th- we have wholeness with God. Um, so the idea with these clothings is, the two pieces, is that the divided clothing, the torn clothing makes way for wholeness, or Jesus' tearing makes way for seamless love and seamless salvation. Um, again, it kind of reminded me, uh, the, the doubleness here, kind of reminded me of the, um, the uh, Leviticus 16, the, the scapegoat, uh, Day of Atonement. Well, if you remember that story, the high priest, there's two goats. Like one is, cruci- is um, sacrificed for the sins of the people, and one is sent out into the wilderness uh, to kind of, symbolize that he's carrying our sins far away. But both those goats are kind of doing the same thing. They're showing how sin is being dealt with. One by being placed on an animal and the animal dying for the people. Another by being placed in the back of the animal 
and that animal kind of carrying it away. It's the same thing. It's just kind of like conveying it from two sides. It's the same here. There's two kinds of clothing. Some is divided and some is not. Uh, but the idea is that Jesus is tearing, uh, on the one hand, makes way for wholeness and seamlessness. So that in Christ, you guys never have to worry about losing what you have. Like, there's no weak spot. There's no spot that if you put a little bit of pressure on it and apply a little bit of pressure here on the seam, that it's possible by your disobedience or it's possible by just having a bad stretch of spiritual Christian living, whatever that means, that maybe you'll lose what you have. That's just not what it teaches. The, the, the seamlessness of the Bible uh, is instead what we have. And what one of the soldiers actually uh, gets, to, gets to bring home. And uh, I kind of like this image. It's a really passing thing. It's almost um, kind of like uh, a spot of lightness in a way, or just maybe it's supposed to be part of the shame Jesus is experiencing. You know, if you're being crucified and someone's playing Yahtzee by your feet, um, maybe that would, would add to it. But, um, but one soldier got, got the garment, right? And the others didn't. And... Um, I think that's the same for us as well. Uh, like one soldier got the garment and the others didn't just based on the roll of a dice. So do you and I get the salvific clothing of Jesus based on the luck of the draw. Or rather, we would say the gracious providence of God, not our work or payment. Because no one celebrates the skill of the Yahtzee player, right? You ever say, like, wow, you know, Man, Waldine, you can roll sixes so well. How did you, you know, practice that and get so good at that? Like, it's just luck, right? I don't know. Is there strategy with Yahtzee? Maybe there is. Uh, but um, let, let, let's just say there's not. Nathan, of course. Of course you'd say yes. Um, let's just say for argument's sake that there's none. Uh, but it is a roll of a dice, right? Um, that, that, that the point is that, that there's, an, there's an emblem here, I think. There's an emblem of conversion or how we, you know, what's happening behind the curtains when we're saved. Um, we just sort of, like, we don't use the word luck as Christians as much as the world does, but in a sense, we realize when we understand these things that we kind of just got lucky. Um, uh, it, it, you know, in, in the same way no one celebrates the skill of the Yahtzee player, no one celebrates, in other words, um, the moral acuity of the Christian, um, but realizes he or she was just loved and chosen before time began. Uh, that's what... That's what's happened behind the curtains of your salvation. When the Bible says you were chosen before the ages, the dice were rolled, or, you know, not actually, but Jesus saw you. He, know, he knew he was going to make you. Uh, that's how, that's how like, much value we have. Like, he was, he's made us. Isn't that amazing? And even though he knew we were going to fall away from him, um, he pursued us and, and saved us. But it's by his will and grace that we are saved by softening of our heart uh, to the things of the cross so we can put our trust in it, um, that we're saved, not by our works. And not even by us, like, choosing to give our life to Jesus. It's a common way that evangelicals sometimes like to talk about, why are you a Christian? Well, I, I gave my life to Jesus, or I invited him in. Um, it's actually not really why you're a believer. Um, you're a believer because Jesus gave his life to you. Uh, it, you're a believer because he kicked down the door of your heart uninvited. Uh, he loved you too much to wait for your invitation. Um, and he made his home there. And uh, the fact that you can believe at all uh, is because he's allowed you to, because he's softened your heart and raised you up from the dead. Um, 
Again, all this is like uh, is signified in I think in a in a small window like way the dice. Um, it, it's not these guys aren't good people. Um, someone just gets the someone just gets the the uh, the undergarment, the clothing of Christ, the covering of his shame, because of God's providence and love. All right. Then this uh, fourth angle uh, is says this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said they divided my clothes among them and cast my lots for garment. So kind of pulling from the last thought there. This is a reference to Psalm 22:18, which I have on screen there. Um, so same thing. But Psalm 22 uh, was written by King David a thousand years before this crucifix- crucifixion event is happening. Um, it's one of the stronger psalm correlations to the crucifixion narratives in the entire book of Psalms. Um, the psalms are prophecies, essentially, are prophetic songs, the songs of Jesus ahead of time. Um, and this one, so by way of one of Jesus' ancestors, David, we're kind of getting a glimpse here uh, into how the Bible is predicting this and how it's shedding light on some things that are happening here on the cross. Not just the, the rolling of dice for clothing historically, but it's revealing us to the, 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 the heart and the cries of Jesus on the cross, again, by way of his uh, ancestor David. So just to kind of work through these kind of quickly, this is what the psalm that says, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is what Jesus says on the cross elsewhere, not in John, but uh, in, in the other gospels. Uh, it says in verses six and seven, uh, but I am a worm, I'm not a man, uh, scorned by everyone, despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. So this is a window into the shame idea as well, right? So they're they're shaking their heads and hurling insults and seeing him, mocking him. They see his nakedness and they're commenting on it, taking pictures. If they had a camera, they would. You know, that, that, that kind of thing. Um, he, he's taking our shame. He's being mocked uh, and, they, and um, hurled against uh, for us. Uh, verse 16 says, um, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and feet. Uh, so again, Jesus' hands and feet are pierced here. This is a straight-up kind of one-to-one prophecy and fulfillment uh, stuff here. But also type, because David is having this kind of moment here, if not literally, poetically, uh, and the idea is his son, the son of David, who is Jesus, would come to truly have this happen uh, on a much greater level than David ever did. But then there's a a shift in the psalm. This is interesting. Uh, It's easy to, to miss this. If you've read Psalm 22 before, it's possible you've forgotten this as well. This is... The psalm shifts from all of this kind of stuff, all the suffering stuff, uh, to the end in verse 27 where it says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And then verse 29, all who will go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Um, and so the, the, the idea, if this is about Jesus ultimately, is that the outcome of Jesus' suffering is the nations will look at the suffering and remember it and turn to God through it. So the remembrance in uh, 27 has to do with remembering the king's suffering or in the grand scheme, remembering the suffering of Jesus and turning to God through it. So the way that we can turn to God in worship, the way that we can be reconciled and have our hearts turn to him is the suffering must occur first. This very specific kind of suffering that Jesus fulfills in a very one-to-one uh, kind of way. Uh, and then, then verse 29, those who are destined to die, those who, um, it, it's interesting, it says, those who can't keep themselves alive. Is that interesting? It's like, 
you know, no amount of Botox or anti-aging, whatever, uh, you know, uh, can, can keep anybody alive. Everyone's going to die. And people are trying so hard to stay alive. It's the same thing as saying you can't save yourself. You can't keep yourself in covenant with God. You can't please him by your works. Uh, you are the, the best of people and the worst of people, Ecclesiastes says, both get plots in the graveyard right next to each other. Well, why is the good person dying just like the bad one? Why are they both destined for the same thing? Like It's these like, things that are spinning in the heads of Solomon saying there must be something more than what we do that's the ultimate definer of who we are and dictator of how we're reconciled with our creator. And he doesn't have all the answers yet at that point in the Old Testament, but Jesus is the answer. We know this. Uh, grace is the answer. It's actually an image of grace to see gravestones right next to each other, one of a mass murderer and one of a humanitarian, and see they both died equally. In fact, the humanitarian died earlier, had a worse life than, than the mass murderer. That doesn't make any sense if you think it's by your works that you dictate your life. If you have a karmic view of reality, or if it's by law or your obedience, it doesn't make any sense. But if it's by grace that we live and die and have salvation, it makes perfect sense. This is, and this is what I think you see in the psalm. Um, people can't keep themselves alive, no matter how good they are. Um, the answer is the sufferings of Psalm 22. The answer to your and my problems in the world. All of our sin, all of our shame and guilt, um, all of our failed attempts at jumping over the bar that we set for ourselves and others. We, we're never able to do it enough. Um, the answer isn't us. The answer is a suffering king who would come to, to wail um, and to become scorned, to become separated even from his father, if that were even possible, and it kind of is on the cross, to be run through with nails in his hands and feet. Uh, the outcome of all of that is salvation because God became a human being to become a sinner somehow, even though he didn't never sin, to become sin on that cross for you and me to die in our place. And when he does that as our representative, everything changes. When we see God through that lens, when God's like, this is how much I love you, this is what I'm willing to spend, everything changes. When he sets aside the law for the sake of himself because we can't keep it, and he says, I set aside the thing that divided you from God, I set aside the thing that kept the veil up, I set aside the thing that wouldn't let you see him, but now you can see me if you just believe in me alone? We start to understand that movement in the Bible. Everything changes. We get over ourselves. We start to be changed by love from the inside out. We become new creations when we realize it's by grace that we're loved and saved and chosen, um, not by our works. All right, John 19, let's, fi let's finish up the passage. It says, uh, near the cross, Jesus stood... Uh, er, the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. All right, so... Um, this, a few things stick out here, I think, in this part, uh, but I think it's important with this section just to start by not burying the lead. Uh, this is an incredibly moving moment, full of uh, pure, unadulterated selflessness. 
Uh, the Son of God hangs on a cross. He's in excruciating pain. The soldiers are there kind of like scrounging for his clothing like dogs. Yet he looks out for others in ensuring before he takes his last breath that his mother would be cared for after his death. So again, this is like gives you a glimpse, a little bit of a window into the heart of God. If you're here asking questions about what God is like, this is what he's like. This is him. And this is what he thinks of you as well. Um, this is how much he wants to care for you. So this is why this is not simply a pragmatic thing. It's theological. Um, this is not simply Jesus getting his affairs in order. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a spiritual symbol. It's a picture of something much bigger. And that is Jesus saying, this is what my death will accomplish for the world. Care, protection, and provision, and shelter. Um, all of those things on the highest of levels, uh, between us and God, for us as gifts, from our sins and shame, uh, he will care for us, protect us, and, and provide forever. Um, some commentators see here in uh, Jesus' words about John a picture of himself, meaning when he says, behold your son to Mary, uh, he's in a way saying, behold me, the true son, or behold in John Mary a picture of me the Son of God, when he cares for you. Uh, it, it's a glimpse of the even better care that I have given you from your sins. And, and that shouldn't be a shocking interpretation for us when we remember that the Bible calls the church the body of Christ. And so there are implications here, I think, for our view of church, our view of relationships and friendships in the church, how important it is to put other people before ourselves and consider them more important than us, Philippians 2, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, but how loving each other in the church is, uh, it's a light. It's, um, it's, it's a glimpse of his greater love for us. And so I, I think what you see in a lot of ways is Jesus redefining family here. He's kind of saying that church is family. There's brothers and sisters, there's fathers and mothers in spiritual senses, um, and God is father overall, and, um, and Jesus is like a brother. Uh, to us. And so that's really the one, one of the big metaphors you get for church is that in the Bible. And I think Jesus here is starting to kind of really create this or speak this uh, in, into existence. So that's important to say as well. But again, coming back, coming back from that, uh, John is not just bringing Mary into his home. Jesus is bringing us into his. Um, I think that that's the reason why John is called the son here. There's a reason why the son is bringing Mary into his house because Jesus brings us into his when he saves us. Um, John 14, 2, if you remember this, um, says, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to pre prepare a place for you? So, it's a different kind of covering here. We had clothing before, and now we have shelter. But it's the same thing. Jesus is trying to cover us and cover our shame and give us shelter from the fiery darts of the enemy and from future impending judgment. So in the end, there's a lot of images we get uh, in, this, uh, in this section of the crucifixion narrative. Uh, if you were to summarize it, you could say he, Jesus prepares things for us. He invites us to himself. He cares for us. He looks out for our well-being. Uh, he clothes us, covers our shame. He warms us. He protects us. He sets aside religious regulation. Um, 
Jesus is not saying, uh, do, 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 as much as believe, believe, believe in me. He fulfills scripture, everything that came before, uh, especially these writings in the Psalms, like Psalm 22, he fulfills them. And he diverts, again, he diverts our shame and guilt onto himself. Because in the gospel, you're actually saved and reconciled with God, not based on what you've done, but just based on what, what, you, what he has done for you. That's how shame starts to go away. That's how guilt starts to be alleviated, is when we actually live and breathe and have our being in that great and glorious truth. So in this, I'll close just by saying, you know, in this uh, Lenten season, um, you got, I think most of you know we don't really do Lent here. Uh, we're kind of a free church, Baptistic tradition, so we don't really do church calendar stuff that much. Um, but whether that's something you observe or not, I think that it's helpful to remember that Jesus is the one who gave something up for you, uh, who never asked you to give up anything for him as if his love is some kind of contract. Uh, the, the gospel, John 19 says, is not unclothe yourself in some way to show your true devotion It is instead, be clothed by the naked one. Be clothed by the shame taker and the substitute. Your king, your God, and your savior, Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for uh, your uh, gospel. Thank you for this passage of scripture that uh, reminds us by way of your clothing and by way of your words to Mary and John uh, at the end that uh, there's something much bigger going on in the universe than us. Uh, You are torn, you uh, were um, humiliated, you were hurled insults at, you were pierced, um, and you were misunderstood, all for us. But in in and through that, you took the brunt, you took our guilt and shame uh, at the highest level. Uh, God, so we ask you to forgive us of what we've done, we we ask that we would be cross-centered people today as we worship with this last song and take communion and leave here, that we be distinctly Christian um, in how we decidedly do not move on from this moment, Uh, but we always see your scars. Not scars in our salvation, that's seamless, never to tear, never to have a point of weakness, but we see the scars that you bear for us and how that's how we know we're saved based on what you do. We don't know we're saved based on the fruit we bear, based on how well we reciprocate, how our lives look when we're Christians. That's not how we're assured of our salvation. We're assured based on what you have done and constantly offer to do for us, which is intercede for us, which is love us to the uttermost, which is die for our sins and rise victoriously three days later for us uh, out of that tomb. So give us assurance based on what you've done. Uh, Set aside the law for us in our hearts that that constantly want to go back to that Help us to set it aside. May you do that for it. it. Set it aside. And instead, may we have that new and actually living way of entrance into the Holy of Holies and, and the torn curtain, the demolished temple, the old covenant, which has been um, destroyed for us to have that new and living way. In Christ we pray.